0: are continuing in our series of Summer of Soul, where we've talked about, you know, what is a soul, and asked that question and dove into it a little bit, as well as looking at what nourishes our souls, and and when I think of, of souls, I think of particular in like moments in time, and so for the lack of a better phrase, I think of soul moments, and just because I'm a little bit of a foodie, most of those involve food. There's just something about when when you're eating with someone or you sit down with a meal, there's something that just makes it a little bit more important. Um, and I think of more specifically like meals that I grew up with. And so one of those being Saturday morning, wake up 9 a.m. and right there on the countertop, my mom would fix me her pancakes. And her pancakes, for some reason are the best pancakes I've ever had. I can go to IHOP, I can go to wherever that sells pancakes, and they're just not the same as my mom's. There's something about the type of butter that she used and the amount of butter she put on, and she would like stir in the syrup in the batter before she would cook them. There's something that just made it that much better. And so I I remember to to this day, waking up like 9 a.m. on a Saturday, sitting down with a plate of my mom's pancakes, and as a fifth grader watching Regis and Kelly in June. I I was a weird kid. (laughs) I I don't know why. It was like Fresh Prince of Bel-Air and then followed by Regis and Kelly and then whatever show came after that. It was like a routine for me for a few years. Um, Another one I think of is my granny's homemade biscuits. Uh, I grew up in a town called Rome, Georgia. It's close to Atlanta. It's about an hour northwest of Atlanta. And my grandmother on my mom's side used to cook the best biscuits you will ever have in your life. And the tragedy is that she didn't have a recipe. She just knew it from memory from doing it so many times. And there's so many other members in my family that have tried to replicate it, and it's just not the same. But I remember family gatherings. Like, we used to have lunch at at her house after church on Sunday, and we'd all go and just ravage the pantry trying to find the biscuits before anyone else could get them. It was so bad to Those of you, if you grew up in like a more conservative church, I know like we had potlucks, or we don't really have a lot of potlucks anymore, but I remember right after church, running to the kitchen in our church to try to get like two or three biscuits before they put them out for everybody else, and the entire family did that, and so they put out the biscuits and there'd be like three, so maybe we're a little selfish and we need to uh, repent for that. And then last but not least, um, every time I go to a Steak and Shake, I think of my dad. Uh, my dad, again, we lived pretty close to Atlanta. And so every once in a while, dad would buy us tickets to an Atlanta Hawks game or Atlanta Braves game. And we would drive the about hour to hour and 20 to get to downtown Atlanta to go watch the, the Braves or the Hawks. But we would always stop about 15 minutes outside of Atlanta to this like one specific Steak and Shake and it was special then. This was before my town had a Steak and Shake, so I thought it was like the best thing ever. I don't know about y'all. I think it's kind of fallen a little bit on the fast food scale. I, I don't really crave Steak and Shake that much anymore. But back then, it was like, this is it. I get to go and have some Steak and Shake. And I was always so excited about it. And we would sit at like the, the counter, and I would watch them make it, and I would dream of the days of becoming a fry cook like SpongeBob. And, and I thank the Lord every day that I didn't choose that career path. <laughs> but, but those were special moments, especially uh, with my dad. That was some alone time that we had together. And he was very busy. He was assistant to the superintendent of the school system back home. And so I could never get in trouble without my dad knowing it. But, but those were little soul moments to where I can, even to this day, I can, like, I can taste that food, like I remember how it tastes. I don't even have to taste it right now, like I'm remembering that taste in my mouth because of just how important those moments were to me. And they're small moments. And soul moments can be on a scale of small to big, but but there are these moments and pockets in time where there's just something about it. There's something that brings everything into perspective. There's something about those moments that draw you back into something that, you know, you may remember or forgotten. It's like a, a piece of yourself that you have left behind that you are now remembering. And it's coming into, and you can like physically remember the smells and the taste. Or, um, or you can like picture the place to the, like the, the littlest detail of that's where i had picnic with dad or this is when mom took me to my first movie or this is where i had my first date i'm never going there again <laughs> whatever those things are they stick with us and i think that you know we can talk about food all day but you know i think food and these moments in particular it just like those elements just enhance those memories and those experiences And something I want us to talk about this morning with soul is I don't believe, and I don't believe scripture says that those moments are something that are just so far gone, that are in this this otherworldly thing, but there's something that we can experience right now. There's something real and physical and tangible about the soul and about what nourishes our soul. And so I want us to go back over this Hebrew word that Pastor Nathan Talked about, I believe it was like two weeks ago, the Hebrew word nephesh. And the Hebrew word nephesh is translated oftentimes soul. Yep, I can't read that. I'm not a Hebrew scholar, but that's, that's what it looks like in Hebrew, but it just literally says nephesh. And so, around 100 or so times, it is translated into the word soul. But there's also other times where this word is not. And it's mentioned over 700 times in the Old Testament. And so just for a few examples, if you go and look, and we're not going to dive deep into these passages, but if you look in Numbers chapter 11, Numbers tells us of the story of the, the Israelites are leaving Egypt, and they're in the wilderness, and they're starting to complain, and they're saying, our, like, we, we crave for the cucumbers and, and the melons of Egypt. The Hebrew word there is nephesh. And so it was like their throats, their throats craved for the food that they can't eat anymore because they're out in the desert in the wilderness. Or in in Psalms, I believe it's Psalm 105, when the psalmist is is retelling the story of Jacob being taken to Egypt. It says that his nephesh was locked in iron. Or in some translations, you literally use the word neck, some use the word he or himself. And so we see this word has a, a pretty broad meaning. Uh, about other than just soul. But I think there's something profound here that, that we can see, is that, you know, it's not just, if you think of the throat, like you cannot live without our throat. Air and breath goes in and out of our throat, from our lungs. We eat food and it goes down our throat. If something happened, I mean, think about neck injuries. If something bad happened to our neck, we can become paralyzed or worse. And so the neck and throat literally points to the entire living organism, the entire physical person. And we see that in other passages. Like my, my favorite passage to point to is in, in Deuteronomy in the Shema, of Lord, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. What Moses is saying there in that prayer is that for your entire being to love the Lord, your entire being. And so, and another great example is Psalm 42, when the as deer pants for the water, so my soul thirsts after you. The word there again is nephesh. And so, yes, our just like a deer, we thirst for water, but we also thirst to be known at the deepest level by our creator, by the God who made us. And so, if you get anything out of today, I want you to remember this, is that you do not have a soul, but you are one. You are a soul. Your experiences, your life, from a mental, spiritual, and physical matter to God They matter so much. And there's a lot of things in our culture that, you know, shames. It's like we have to look a certain way. We have to appear a certain way. But God says, and how I read the stories, especially the Old Testament scriptures leading all the way up through Jesus and beyond, is that God doesn't pick someone and then zaps them up makes them a certain way, and then zaps them back down, and then they go on and fulfill the work that the Lord has called them to do. They don't have to do, It's like, all right, well, I'm going to call you to, to lead your people out of Egypt, Moses, but before that, you need to go and fulfill this checklist, and then I'll let you go do it. God comes to us exactly where we are. He reminds us where we come from and who we belong to, and promises us a brighter future. I mean, if you look back at Moses, we oftentimes forget that Moses was a murderer. He killed an Egyptian and Pharaoh was out to kill him and he had to run into the wilderness himself, the very wilderness that he would later lead Israel through. But God comes to him in a burning bush while he's shepherding the sheep at the very mountain where Moses will come later And meet with God and to get the Ten Commandments. God takes this man, Abraham, this old man who had no kids. And told him, you are going to be a father of a great nation. And if you've spent any time in that story, you know Abraham wrestled with this relentlessly. God had to go through so many hoops to promise Abraham that this was going to come true. But God came to Abraham just as he was. God went to a young shepherd boy, the youngest of all of his brothers, all of his siblings, who his father didn't even think would be worth bringing to Samuel to be considered his king. God went to David and said, You will be the next king. We are a soul. Our physical embodiment, our bodies, everything that we see around us was created by God. And yes, we have something that has tainted our world, but God gives us a new promise. And that's what we're going to look at, is resurrection, which is really just changing our perspective. I know that resurrection is is this very big mountain, and it's really hard to understand at times, and it's, it's just this... Like, okay, well, how can this be true? How can, how can something physical be born again? We see the same thing in the story of Nicodemus in John 3. Jesus tells him, you have to be born again. He's like, what? Uh, I can't go back up there, man. That's just not happening. I'm an old guy. I can't be born again. But that's the exact reaction that I think we should have. Because it takes a whole lot Of time and prayer and grace to begin to come to terms with what does the resurrection mean to us? More than just on Easter, but what does it mean to us right now? And I would like to to read you a story from the, the Gospel of Luke in chapter 24. And this is going to be our main text this morning. If you want to go ahead and turn there in your Bibles, it's going to be Luke 24, starting at verse 13. And so the beginning of this chapter is the chapter where Jesus is raised on the third day, where Mary and Peter go and they see the grave is empty and they, they don't know what's going on. And so we pick up with two specific disciples, One, only one of them is named, but they're on the road to Emmaus, which is about seven miles away from Jerusalem. This is three days after everything went down. And so, just to refresh your memory, they come on Israel with a giant party. People are bringing out olive branches, they're throwing confetti, they're having a great time. The king is here, the king is here, he's going to kick out Rome, and we're going to be back to the way it used to be. Jesus is going to save us from our situation. And then... On the very, which is so ironic because the very festival going on is celebrating the Passover where Israel was taken out of Egypt and saved from slavery. Jesus comes in, he's arrested, he's tortured, and he's killed. That's nothing that his disciples were expecting. Nowhere close. And we'll see that in the passage. And then just also, just another quick side note, the Emmaus, and when you're reading scripture, obviously authors don't really give us a ton of details, but when they do, they're important. And the town of Emmaus was actually the town, it was the the scene of a battle of the Persian captivity where the Israelites defeated the Persians and God redeemed them. And so the very town these disciples are going to is a slap in the face because they would have heard the story of this battle as kids growing up in their day and age. It would be like hearing about the battle of Pearl Harbor or or any of these, or of Gettysburg. And so it's almost like a slap in the face that they're even going there. And so we pick up here in verse 13. And behold, on the very day the two of them were going to a village named Emmaus which was 60 stadia or seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all the things which had taken place. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself approached them and began traveling with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And so they're walking down the road and they're talking about everything that they've just experienced. All the, the shock and all these other flow of emotions of this is not what was supposed to happen. And then this random guy walks up to him, happens to be Jesus, but we're told that they can't recognize him. And so then Jesus said to him, what are these words that you were exchanging here? Hey, what are you guys talking about? What's going on? Or which, oh, sorry. With one another as you were walking, and they came to a stop. And looking sad, one of them named Cleopas answered to him and said, "Basically, like, are you the only person around here that doesn't know what's going on? Are you kidding me? Like, we're like, we can see Jerusalem, and you, you don't know what just happened." And so Cleopas goes and tells them, basically. How he viewed Jesus, and this is important. And he, said, or, and he said to him, what sort of things? And they said to him, those about Jesus, the Nazarene, who proved to be a prophet, indeed, and went in the sight of people and, and of word, in the sight of people and of God, and how the chief of priests and the rulers handed him over to be crucified and sentenced him to death. But they were hoping, but we were hoping that he was going to redeem Israel. And so we see here, as they say, Jesus was a prophet. Jesus was supposed to take, just like God took the Persians about 150 years ago and kicked them out, he was supposed to kick out Rome. He's supposed to save us from the suppression of, of the Roman Empire. And so we see here is like their perspective was different than what Jesus actually was. They had preconceived notions of what they thought resurrection was going to look like. What redemption of our entire beings, of our souls, was going to look like. They thought it looked like an actual overthrow of the Roman government. But I'm going to paraphrase here, and Jesus is like, what are you guys talking about? Did you not read the prophets? Did you not know that the Messiah had to go through this in order to complete his purpose? Again, I'm paraphrasing here. And then what does Jesus do? Jesus has a Bible study with them on this road. <laughs> and so Jesus goes all the way from Moses all the way through the rest of the prophets, talking to them about these things. And when they get to the end of the road, where they're supposed to part ways, they still don't know. And so they, they've run into Jesus, a guy they spent three years with. They gave up everything to go and follow him. They don't recognize him, first impression. Jesus then runs through all of the, the places in Scripture that speaks about him and why he had to do what he did, and they're still clueless. And we can sit here, and we can, we can judge them, and we can talk smack or whatever it may be, the fact of the reality is we do the same thing. We also come with our preconceived notions and what we think a life in Jesus is supposed to look like. We all do. His disciples did. If, if we can't have grace for ourselves for that, when the very men who spent, and women who spent the most time with him did not immediately recognize him when he came to them after his resurrection, then we need to check ourselves. Because we are just like those disciples in that sense. And that it's going to take a process. And so again, Jesus comes and, and they're like, well, will you come, come have dinner with us? So they're intrigued. There's something going on here. They're intrigued. They're like, okay, there's something interesting about this guy. Let's ask him to dinner. And Jesus is like, no, 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 it's okay. I'll just keep going. Oh, please, please come come eat with us. No, 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 it's fine. It's fine. And so they keep going back and forth. They're like, okay, fine, I'll come with you. And so Jesus goes with them. And so then they go and they sit around a table. And this is where I really want us to focus this morning. And as they sat down to eat, this is verse 30, and he took the bread and blessed it. And then he broke it and gave it to them. And suddenly their eyes were open, or they recognized him in the moment he disappeared. It was that soul moment that helped them recognize who was right in front of them. It was Jesus reenacting the dinner they had just had days before. Or he had told them about what was going to happen. Or he washed their feet, including Judas. And took the place of a lowly servant. And where he broke the bread and took the cup. And he redefined what that meant. It's like This is no longer just a lamb or an animal. This represents me. And what I'm willing to do and have done and will continue to do for you if you so accept it. And it's in that moment or, or I think, and I'm adding here, but I think if they remember the sights, the sounds, and the smells of that upper room where they had Passover together. It just all clicks. It's like, oh my gosh. And they say, like, weren't our hearts burning on the road when he was talking to us? When he was saying all those things, how did we not know? We deal with the same thing. But it's these soul moments. It's where we go back and we model our daily lives after rhythms and habits that point us back to those moments and point us forward into the future. Because we remember how to be present in those moments. We remember the conversations that we had or the conversations I would have with my mom at 9 a.m. while I'm trying to watch Regis and Kelly. I remember the, the sights and the sounds and then the very seats that we would sit when my dad took me to Turner Field for the first time as a kid. And if we can remember that, how much more deeply impactful is that we remember these soul moments that point us to Jesus? Where Jesus came in and did something amazing that we never expected and never saw coming. But just like all of these moments, it's really easy to forget. I was in youth ministry about, for about four years before I stepped onto my role here at Upper Room. And, and I, I say this because our students are about to go to camp tomorrow at Camp Anderson. Um, and so I think about these camp experiences, and they're so amazing, and they're fun. They're also chaotic and crazy, and people are throwing water balloons filled with bleach at each other. I promise that's not going to happen next week, but, but it's, it's madness, and it's beautiful. And there's so many lives that are changed at those camps. I, my life was changed at one of those camps as a 17-year-old. But also I remember how easy I would forget everything that just happened. And they would always have that one speaker at camp right before you would leave, like, well, we need to take this with us and not forget about it, and hip, hip, hooray, y'all have a great year. And then you leave, and you go right back home, and it's like it never happened. Why does that happen? It's because I believe that we're very forgetful. But Jesus models, he models ways that we can remember these soul moments what i like to call resurrection living and it's by not only being intentionally creative in the ways that we go back to these moments but i also believe that jesus doesn't take us to be happy and and teleports us out of our problems but jesus makes us whole jesus makes us whole that's how we were designed And so we, when we go back to these things that we know are defining moments in our lives or these soul moments, we need to be intentionally creative how we do them. I think one way is with alone time. How much time are you spending in silence? Are you, in your calendar, writing down at least once a week, at the very least, a time where you can go on a walk without your phone or maybe go on a drive or find a place in your house or your backyard or front yard to just sit and be still because we're so busy we're so busy and we have these things in our pockets that ding and ring and vibrate every few minutes and we have tons of notifications that we feel are all-important that we need to get to now, but how much time are we taking to just be still? And we see in Mark 2, Jesus did that often. He would just dip out and go. And disciples would wake up like, where did he go? Where's Jesus? Anybody know where he is? And nobody would know where he went. And Jesus often did that either right before or right after he performed a big miracle. Jesus knew that in order to bless other people and to speak in other people's lives, he had to have time with God the Father. He had to have time of prayer and of silence. And so how much alone time are we being? And again, be creative with it. It doesn't have to be bland. It could be however you want it to be. But I believe that each of us knows what that looks like. The second thing being community time. Time that we spend intentionally in communities centered on Jesus. Because we're all going to find a community, each and every one of us. But, but it's like a pastor that, that I used to listen to growing up would say, it's like you are who you hang around. And so if mainly the group, the community you're hanging out with, are people who are bitter and are jealous and spiteful and angry, And that's like your core group. We can hang out with these people, absolutely. But if that's like the the group that you're hanging out with the majority of your time, then you're going to pick up those aspects. You're also going to become bitter. You're also going to become spiteful and angry. And so how are we intentionally surrounding ourselves with a loving and graceful community? And then finally, I believe it's, it's serving. Is giving up our time, which we have so many ways that we're doing here at Upper Room. I mean, we're doing, I think, I think Jordan's done a great job of being intentionally creative in this way, of doing like a 5K. It's like Instead of just doing a fundraiser, hey, let's go out and, and sweat in the hot sun for three hours. <laughs> It'll be great. <laughs> but of giving up our time, and you don't, I believe that time is our greatest asset. Because where you spend the most time, as Jesus says, that's where your treasure is. And where your treasure is is where your heart is. That's where your thoughts and your intuition and everything that are in our minds, that's, that's where we will find our hearts, is where we're spending most of our time. And so are we giving up that time? Are we giving up that time to love and to serve others? And so I think of particularly in, in light of serving, I think of Jesus in John 4 with the, the woman at the well. It says in John 4 that Jesus had to go through Samaria. If you look at a map, you can see that he did not have to go through Samaria. It was actually the long way around to get where he was going. But Jesus intentionally gave up his time because he knew there was something that needed to be done there. He gave up time that he could have spent getting to Jerusalem, getting where he was going quicker, but he took the long way around because he knew that he was needed. And I don't believe that we can fully serve or we can fully be in community if we're not having alone time. And all of these things are connected. All of these things, we have to balance them. But I think at the center of all of this is living hope, which is what Peter talks about in 1st Peter chapter 1. So if you want to turn there in your Bibles we'll we'll read that together. But this is Peter about a couple of decades after the resurrection. After he himself had betrayed Jesus by denying him over and over again. because He was scared for his life. Because again his perspective of this is not supposed to happen. We're supposed to be fighting these guys. And so he, he just denies Jesus, and he goes, and we read in elsewhere in other Gospels, he goes back to what he was doing. He, was fit, he went back to fishing. But we see this transformation in Peter, especially up to this point as he addresses these churches. And so we're going to start reading in verse 3. All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is by his great mercy that we have been born again. We've been resurrected, we've been born again, because God raised Jesus from the dead. Now we live with great expectation, and we have a priceless inheritance, an inheritance that is kept in heaven for you, pure and undefiled, beyond the reach of change and decay. And through your faith, God is protecting you by his power until you receive the salvation, which is ready to be revealed on the last day. So be truly glad. There is wonderful joy ahead, even though you must endure many trials for a little while. These trials will show your faith is genuine. It is being tested as fire tests and purifies gold, though your faith is far more precious than gold. So when your faith remains strong through many trials, it will bring you much praise and glory and honor on the day when Jesus Christ is revealed to the whole world. And so we read this, and this living hope, and what is a living hope? Again, I don't believe this hope is something that is like, well, we're going to be taken away one day, and we're not going to feel any of this anymore. I believe it's something that we can live into right now. It's something that God invites us into now. And it's coming and it's here. It's this weird paradox, again, that we have to wrestle with. But Jesus, again, creates us to be whole people. And that's what nourishes our soul. Is when we can start to live into that is instead of how can I be happy, how can I look out for me, is how can I be made whole? You can't do that by yourself. It takes Jesus. It takes all of us doing this together. And what I love about this passage, too, is it's not like we don't get this resurrection on our own. We don't get this new life on our own. We get it through Jesus because of Jesus, and who He is, and His love for us, His love for you. It's this God that, that created everything, like John says in John 1, that the Word was God and the Word was with God, and so this, this God who created everything that we see around us and that we don't see, knows you. That God loves you. He sees who you are and who you could be. And wants to walk alongside you on the road to get there. That's who our God is. Jesus came down here to earth to be like us so that we could one day become like Jesus. That's the message, y'all. And so whatever you're doing in your everyday life, pursue that. It's in that hope that drives us to spend quality time with God. Because we know that we need it and we thirst for it, just as the deer thirst for the water. Our souls, our entire being thirst after God. It's in this hope that is alive That we strive to be into community with each other. Because we don't want to be alone. We don't want to live alone. We're not meant to be isolated. We're meant to be together. And community is hard. Just like life is. But we need it. Jesus himself had community. He surrounded himself with 12 close friends. Jesus didn't do it alone either. It is in this living hope that we love and we serve. Because we know there's something so much bigger than ourselves. And we know it's truly going to satisfy us and bring us purpose is being the hands and feet of Jesus to those around us. Even if we can't see eye to eye, even if we don't understand where they're coming from, we may not agree on everything. But Jesus, the God who created the word that was in the beginning, spoke life into existence to put on a robe, and he got on his knees and he washed his disciples' feet. Something that was for the lowest of the low, that none of his disciples wanted to do. Jesus took that role to show us something that we are to do the same. So as the worship team starts to come back up, I want to leave you with with this encouragement. we have we have a prayer team that comes down every week that is open to talking with you to being with you and listening and praying with you if that's something that you need but i also know that's really intimidating and it's really scary to come up and be vulnerable and that's okay i want to point back to the story of of nicodemus nicodemus being the the top of the top when it comes Jewish rabbis he's probably like I guess the best example is like the Stephen Furtick of rabbis Like he had the most influence he had lots of money he had lots of people who loved him and looked up to him but he was he wanted to talk to Jesus and he knew what that would mean if he did of the backlash that he would receive and so he asked Jesus, can, can you meet with me at night? And Jesus, who very well could have used that, be like, no, 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 come and meet with me tomorrow in the town square. It, it could have shown, he could have shown people like this is even like the most religious person that you can think of is having second guesses about this. And Jesus could have gotten a hand up. He could have gotten some reputation for himself. But you know what Jesus did? He said, okay. I'll meet with you tonight. And in the darkness, and in the place where no one could overhear them, except maybe John, I guess, Nicodemus began asking questions. Nicodemus was a seeker. And so if that is you this morning, if you are seeking something, there is some longing within you that wants to know more about how to live, A life born anew. How to become a new person. Jesus will meet you right where you're at. You may not be ready to talk to someone in person yet, but I encourage you, open yourself up to Jesus. Jesus tells his disciples to pray behind locked doors and closed windows. I believe that's where we could start. And so, again, if you have any need this morning, we will be up here. But will you go ahead and stand as we pray back into service this morning? And we'll sing one more song. Holy Jesus. It's so hard for us to come to grips with such a perfect and holy God being so accessible and personal. And wanting to be so close to us. And though we may not feel worthy of that, give us grace. Give us your spirit to take one step closer to you. Because it's only in you, Jesus, that refreshes our souls. There's plenty of other things in this world that can just get us by. But may you put something in our hearts. And in our minds, that reminds us that we long after something more and that you're the only one who can provide that. Jesus, we love you so much. Our whole beings long after you. We thirst after you. We run after you as you run after us. Lord, we recognize that you're with us, and we pray that our eyes and ears are open to your presence throughout this week and throughout the rest of our lives. It's in your holy name that we pray. Amen.